Welcome to Legacy Church, Amelia Island. We pray that you are blessed by the message that you are about to hear, and we believe that it will help you leave a Christ-glorifying legacy for generations to come. So good to be with you here today, Legacy Church family. Why don't you put your hands together for the goodness of God in your life, if you're excited to, to be here and thank for all that God is doing in your life. Why well, I'm so thankful that we get to be here today on what is an important day in the kingdom of God. I hope you know that every day that God gives you life is an important day in the kingdom of God. We know that if you have a pulse, he has a purpose and a plan. And so we're thankful that you're part of this community here at Legacy Church, whether you're in the building or online today. We're so thankful for that. And as we get into our message today, I want to give you a couple of, of uh, current events and things that are coming really quick. Ready or not, here they come. Um, how many of you know that next week is Christmas Eve service? Like, if you have not men shopped, men planned, men wrapped, we probably want to start thinking about those things. Amazon can only do so much for you, right? You can take a horse to water, the old folks said, but you can't make it drink. So my message is not to the women, to the men. Make sure you got your stuff sorted out, all right? Um, so yeah, so next Sunday is our Christmas Eve service. If you're aware um, of our service times, we have a, a 1030 here like we do every Sunday morning. And then in the evening at 6 o'clock, we'll have a candlelight service. And so there'll be special elements for the family. There'll be no child care because when everybody in the same room together, it'll be beautiful controlled chaos. You're not going to want to miss it. Um, but I do want you to pray. I want you, are there people in your life, are there family, friends, neighbors, who you might invite, and for them, Christmas 2023 is when they found Jesus, is when they found out what Christmas was really about. The tree and the gifts are great, but there was one gift that was given. There was one son that was sent. And that's what I hope that our community finds, that all the churches in our community. And so would you be mindful and prayerful about inviting someone there to that? And then I want you to get ready. If you're new to our church, this will be new. If you're not new, this is what we do every year. Uh, our prayer and fast starts in January. And so from the first Sunday in January all the way through that month, we will begin prayer and fasting. We'll have different elements and part of that devotions, things of that nature. And so if you have never taken part in prayer and fasting, it is life changing. Our life, our church has been built on it. We've seen God bless in so many ways. So we give you some... Um, ahead some notice ahead of time now so you'll know about it so you'll be aware that you should start praying and processing what fasting will look like for you the most traditional and truest sense is food and so whether that's certain meals or the daniel fast with meat or for some people who are just getting started they'll just take things out of their schedule whether it's social media or other things and then watch this insert time with god the win is time with god the win is time in his presence the win is as Jesus would disappear to spend time with the Lord and up in different spaces and places. That, that's what we hope for our congregation as well. But to teach you, we don't pray and fast in this church as a last resort. It's the first resort. Men in our church, we start the month praying and fasting for our marriages, for our children, for our families, for our, our workplaces, for our community, for our country, because that's the model that we have in the Word of God. Amen? Wonderful. Well, we began uh, a message last week in this series called Family Tree. Anybody encouraged by last week's message? Anybody shocked that God would pull Rahab into his family tree? He'd go to a pagan nation and a pagan culture and, oh, by the way, find a prostitute and say, yeah, that's mine. That's mine. That, that's, that's my girl. That's my chosen. And so it's so encouraging to see that Jesus' family tree becomes a bit messy because he wants to relate to all of us. The Bible says, 
We don't serve a high priest that can't relate. No, he relates in every way to us and our families and everything else. And so um, I didn't get through all of the message, and so I'm so grateful that I continued that message today with you. I want to talk to you from the same subject, but we're going to continue in the family tree, finding purpose and providence in the family tree. And it's the sequel. Sometimes sequels aren't good. You know what I'm saying? This is going to be a good sequel. You believe that with me? Okay, half of you do. That's enough for me. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for the privilege of knowing you, for the privilege of being saved. The Bible declares we didn't go after you. You came after us. So thank you, God. In a world where purpose and success is shifting, sometimes an unattainable target, we have our purpose and our success found in you. And I pray these next few moments, Father, are encouraging, are uplifting, that you pull down the blinders and give us eyes to see. May the chaos and static of the world fall away. May you give us ears to hear what your spirit has to say. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, to have your way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you were with us last week, it was a, a very pivotal message, I believe, in this family tree because we got to a point that really helped us understand as a, as a people of God, as disciples of Jesus Christ, not just as church attenders and religious people. No, we are disciples of Jesus Christ. We don't just serve a God, some God. No, we serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He reveals his name as Yahweh. He is not the man upstairs. He is a personal God. In the prayer, Jesus reveals he's our father, right? He's the one closer than a friend. We talked about the world is searching for purpose and providence but it's actually closer than we think. Whether it's revealed through a person named Rahab, who we know was in a pagan culture, in a pagan nation, who was a prostitute. She found purpose in loving God, and oh, by the way, loving people. You remember, it started with hiding the spies, and then she showed her love for God and, and, and honoring the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or, or whether you see purpose in the life of Abram, who, who gets his life sorted and leaves Ur the Chaldeans and, and becomes faithful and loyal to God who's leading him and he becomes Abraham. He finds purpose in pain, but also he sees the providence of God and loving God and, and loving people and setting up the family tree. You know, it's interesting because maybe you're starting to see that God has a way of setting up intentional hurdles that lead humanity back to him. Can you think for a moment through the hurdles in your life that have led you back to God? That's a big question to think about. That's a big question to kind of analyze throughout your life. What hurdles in life has God allowed, has maybe even at times God brought to lead you back to him? I remember a great uh, mentor and leader once said, when you pray for someone who's far from God, pray that God brings so many hurdles in their life, they have no one to turn to but God. That's an audacious prayer, especially for people you love. Pray that so many things come to pass in their life, God will be the only option. Amen? We talked about providence, and, and I want to give a little more context to it if you weren't here last week, but, but providence comes from two Latin words. It comes from pro, which means before, and video or video, which means to see something before or to see. And so providence or pro video would mean that God sees things before they happen. And he has a way of weaving natural events spiritually. 
That's the God that we serve. We, we shared out of Romans that all things work together to those who love him. And last week, we saw that Rahab, she didn't just save her immediate family, but the extended family and the family tree, simply because she got into a place of spiritual health with some short-term decisions and long-term decisions. And for you in this series, to get your family tree into a place of health, there are some immediate things you're going to have to stop doing and start doing. There are some immediate things, some, some short-term decisions you're going to have to start making to get in a position to make some long-term decisions. And I hope you see that what that looks like for your life. But as you'll see today, we'll be in the book of Ruth. You want to start getting that book ready, firing up whatever device you brought with you. I'm always a fan of the leather-bound uh, Bible. But you're going to see the family tree, there's some decisions to be made. And God is not done shaking up the family tree as we turn to Ruth chapter 1, and we'll start in the first verse. If you've been familiar with the book of Ruth, it's a, it's a really great devotional study book because it only consists of a couple of chapters, a handful of chapters, about four chapters, 85 verses altogether. So you can skim through and really get the gist of it, but it's really, really powerful. Scholars say it takes place somewhere around in the book of Judges time frame, and you'll see why here eventually. Really interesting. One of the only books named not after a Jew and one of the only books named after a woman. Anybody know the other book in the Bible named after a woman? Not just Ruth, but who else? You're reading your Bibles. That is wonderful. And so as we look in the book of Ruth, to be uh, so singled out in so many ways, to be so strategic in so many ways in the Bible, there is something in here that I was praying while we were in worship. I was on my knees. I was saying, God, can you pull the blinders off our eyes and to see maybe what we haven't seen here before? This is a very important and very strategic book in all of the Bible, and specifically when we talk about the family tree. And so I want you to turn your attention to verse 1 here, and it says this, in the days when the judges ruled. It's very important because in the days when the judges ruled is, speaks to the book of Judges most likely. And what this speaks to that in the days of the judges ruled, this was a, a bad time for the believer. The book of Judges says this is a time that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It was disobedience to God. It was loose morality. It was you have your truth. I have my truth. You have your relative way of living. I have my relative way, relative way of living. Don't be so myopic and say that there's only one way to the Father. That sound familiar to anybody? And so because they were in this time, they were doing what's right in everybody's eyes, we read here, there was a famine in the land. Well, someone would say, well, how do you put those two, how do you reconcile those two together? Well, read Ezekiel 14, 13. And we know that that was one of God's ways to teach people, that he would allow them to fall into a place of lack, enough hurdles to where there was only one person they could look to. Now, they could search anywhere else, like you and I, we can search anywhere else in hardship, but we will not find peace or strength or grace or direction or discernment or purpose until we look towards God. And so that's where they find themselves. There was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, that's their family unit, wife and two sons, went to live for, went to, went to live for, a, far, for a while in a country of Moab. Now, it's interesting that they would leave a place called the House of Bread, Bethlehem means House of Bread in Hebrew, to a place called Moab. Once again, if you're studying your Bible, you're studying context here, Moab, common day Jordan in Hebrew, Moab, that's a problem because that was, once again, a pagan nation. They're leaving the godly space, the place that God had ordained and promised Messiah's coming out of Bethlehem. And where are they going? 
to a secular place where I don't know who came, who came to dinner, who came to the office, who was about the water cooler and say, hey, go check this place out. Go far from the things of God because the world's doing it this way and I hear there's an easier lifestyle there. I hear it's easier to do whatever they were looking for. In this instance, it was bread. In this instance, it was uh, chase or running away from the famine that had been there. And here's the problem. When God is teaching us a lesson, we should not run. We should stay and see what he's trying to say and what he's trying to do. Because here's the problem. Someone told me the other day, I can't wait to move and to do this and to do that. And my reply was, you understand that if, the, if, if, if whatever's going on in your life is the common denominator, you can be in any city, in any country, and the same problems will, will continue. And so what you're going to see with this family, that they have the same common denominator problem that's going to follow them now, not to the place of promise, but to the place that's secular and far from God. And so what we're going to see here is that they go to a place called Moab. And Moab was problematic because anybody know where Moab came from? They're a descendant um, of Lot's daughters, messy family tree story. You can read at your leisure, Genesis chapter 19. Lot's daughters sleep with Lot, and there's incest there, and the whole nation comes from Moab. And it's a messy story. Like I said, the family tree gets messy. Um, but that's what Moab is known for, and really they're cursed in a sense because the Bible tells in Deuteronomy 23.3, up until the 10th generation, they can't even go to the temple. This is, this is the place where the father of this family takes his family. To all the fathers in the room, be careful how you lead your family. Be careful what you're listening to, what wind of doctrine. Be careful what you're doing and how you're doing it. Relieving pressurized situations of tension just for the moment. And what we're seeing here is that happening. And now we, we see here in, in verse 2, this is the family. The man's name was Elimelech. Anybody looking for any good baby names? I guarantee you that one's available. Anybody interested by the baby names we're hearing today? All kind of baby names. Elimelech means God is king or our God is king, which is a strong family name, right? A little bit different than the names we're hearing out here, like Walker and Texas Ranger and things like that. But I mean, hey, you know, whatever you think, just pray God's blessing over that name. No offense to any Walker or Texas Rangers in the room. Um, but Elimelech and his wife uh, was Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion. And it goes on to say, and they went to Moab and lived there. Remember what kind of culture this is. Remember, they are considered cursed from the Jewish perspective because of what God had to lay on them, because of where they started with the disobedience of, of Lot's daughters. Verse 3 says this, now Limelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. And they lived there for about 10 years. There's, 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 there's messiness here in the family tree. Dad has uprooted the family. They didn't trust God in the place of covenant, in the place of promise, taking them to Moab. Unfortunately, his legacy dies. And if you read any Jewish scholarly writings on this, Elimelech is not seen in, 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 in a good light for what he, he, where he's led his family. And unfortunately, his legacy is he dies in the place of disobedience. He dies in the culture that's far from God. And as he dies, watch this, he doesn't put what he needs to put in his children. I don't know if he, he, he was thinking he's going to leave them money or leave them title or position, but he doesn't leave them a spiritual inheritance. How do we know this? Because his sons marry women not a part of the promise, not a part of the covenant. God's issue is not the culture. God's issue is the covenant. You can marry whoever you want. Are they part of the covenant? 
and they take women where they don't go back to Bethlehem to, to, to marry women of the covenant and then bring them back to Moab. They marry women from this, this pagan place, and it says one was named Orpah and the other was named Ruth, and they lived there for about 10 years. Then verse 5, both Malon and Kilion also died. Can we just look at Naomi's life for a moment? And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Not only was it difficult leaving her hometown and, and her family structure and her support system, helping with the kids and all the maybe food and things that she was familiar with, she's now lost her hometown, she's now lost her husband, and she's now lost not one but two sons. It puts her in a really a precarious place. Uh, a woman could not really be gainfully employed, and not only <laughs> did she lose her husband, she lost her two sons, and now she's a widow with no means. And so as she's in this place, verse 6 says, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, not in the place of disobedience, not in the pagan place, not in the place far from God's promise. Where did God provide food? Back home in Bethlehem, the house of bread. It says she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home. And so Naomi is in a place of trauma. I want you to, for a moment, don't take it for granted where she is. Naomi is in a place of trauma. She's lost everything near and dear in her life. You know, it's easy to look at these biblical stories and say, well, I would have done it this way. You know, I would have, but please don't miss what's happening right now in real time. She's lost everything near and dear to her. She's a quasi-Job. Like, I don't know if we give her enough credit for her suffering and the bitterness of what she experienced and, and what she had to undergo and, and the pain that she's got to live in in real time. And she loses it all in the place that represents the flesh, in a place that doesn't glorify the spirit, that glorifies being far from God. Naomi's in a place where God's providence will not come to pass in Moab. Are you hearing me? God's providence won't come to, to fruition in a place of you and I being disobedient from God. So he has to set up some hurdles. He has to prepare some things that lead Naomi to the place of his providence, and it's not in Moab. Where is it going to be? Bethlehem. And so he sets it up to where now the house of bread is once again producing bread, which he was always going to do if they had waited on the promise. And now she's led back to this place, and she's taking her daughters-in-law, or at least um, the, 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 the thought is suggesting they would return with her. And so as she does that, she's in a place where now she's got to reason with the daughters-in-law and say, hey, and I'm, I'm highlighting some things here for you because we've got to move quickly. She says to her daughter, daughters-in-law, there's two of them, she says, hey, guys, you don't want to come with me. Stay here with your culture. She even says, if you read it, in your gods, because it was a pagan nation, and her sons had brought these people into the family. She said, stay here with your culture and your family. Everything that, listen to this, is familiar to you. Like, why would you go with me to a culture you're not familiar with, to a god you're not familiar with? Stay here with your people, because I can't produce sons anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm old. I'm in a space where I've already I lived that life. And so go back to your people. And then in verse 14, it picks up with the response. And it's a, it's a moving one. There was a relationship here between daughter-in-law and, and mother-in-law that, that evokes verse 14. And it says, at this they wept aloud. They, they didn't want to leave each other. There was a family unit. There was something. There was some tie here. They didn't just, all right, see you. It says that they wept aloud and, and they're all grieving. One is... 
grieving like the others grieving. They've all lost their husbands. This so happens. Naomi's lost not just a husband. She's lost how many? Two sons. And it says they wept aloud, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. Watch this. One kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. I want to show you something here, that in your life, you will have people who kiss you goodbye and people who will cling to you. Don't miss this. This is a very important principle in relationships. God brings people into your life for a season. We're going to kiss you and leave you. Jesus knew a thing or two about that. And there are some people in your life that God has purposed to cling to you. And you don't need a whole lot of clingers. You just need one. You just need one to be there with you and to be there for you. You just need one because a lot of people will come and go in life. And all of us have learned this in life, that, that well, they're there for you when it, it's good, but when it's not good, they're going to kiss you and leave you. But we're told one clings, and that's Ruth. Verse 15 says, Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go with her. Naomi is thinking about not herself, but she's thinking the best for Ruth. You don't want to come with me. I don't know what lies ahead for me in life or in Bethlehem. Go with her. But in verse 16, if you don't have this highlight in your Bible, on your device, you don't have this circled, this is one that poets, whether secular or biblical or not, say some of the most beautiful language ever written in all of history. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. And here it is. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God now becomes my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. What you and I just read, there was a powerful testimony that Naomi had showed Ruth. I don't know if Ruth had some estrangement from mother or father. I don't know what happened, but Naomi becomes her mother, her spiritual mother, her natural mother. She says, I've seen this culture. I've seen the gods here. I've seen the families here. I've seen the way of the world here. You've lived something. Like, I don't know what your God is or what it's going to look like in Bethlehem, but I'm willing to commit to that more than what I've seen here. You know, a lot of us who are raising kids, we're so concerned with the world, aren't we? We're so concerned with social media and what they watch and what they're going to be exposed to and all those kind of things. But here's what we'll find out. If we expose our children and our family to enough wholeness, when they're exposed to brokenness, they won't want it at some point. Ruth had been exposed to enough brokenness. She sees wholeness in Naomi, and she goes, I want that. Because she can go back to the pagan stuff. She can go back to the secular stuff. She can go back to living for herself and the culture. Like the deity in Moab, like they sacrificed children to this deity. It was intense. But you show your family enough wholeness, and eventually they'll want that over the brokenness of this world. And that's what Ruth wants. So verse 19 says this. So the two women went until they came to Bethlehem, the house of bread. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women explained, can this be Naomi? And they're shocked because why? She left with a husband and two sons a decade ago. And so she comes back with no husband and no sons and a foreigner. So there's, there's a stirring here going on in the community. And now verse 20, you're going to see where Naomi is in her heart and her spirit. She says, don't call me Naomi. The name Naomi means pleasant. 
Don't call me pleasant. Don't, don't look at me that way. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. She's having a transparent moment here. I went away full, but the Lord, him, yeah, he's, he's brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth and Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem. And here's something that you can't miss because God is setting something up as the barley harvest is beginning. That means they're coming back in late April, early May. The barley harvest is about to start. They planted some things. They're about to see the growth of those things, about to harvest those things. And what I want to show you is this, is that God is planting something, and they can't see it. Are you aware that you and I are not supposed to see what God is planting in our moments of difficulty and sorrow? Are you aware of that? Are you aware that we are human beings and we are finite for a reason? We're not supposed to see the providence of God. We're supposed to trust that it exists. We're not supposed to know how God works. We're supposed to know that he works. We're not supposed to understand how great and how big and how mighty he is, his ways and his thoughts. They're purposely bigger and further than ours. We're just supposed to believe that they're faithful and that they're true. And so the scripture says, oh, by the way, for the reader, they came back at the time of the barley harvest. That must be important. We know Naomi's name means pleasant, but the trials of her life have gotten the best of her. Have that happened to you? Can you remember a time that it, it changed? Trials can change you for a season. Trials can make you lose hope or even doubt your faith. The Bible says a heart or a person without hope, if hope's deferred, it makes the heart sick. There are some seasons of life that can even change your character. Tough seasons can skew your faith. They can skew your theology. It even makes you uh, reminisce in a remixed version. Here's what I mean. You ever thought about the old days and be like, oh, times were so good in the old days because you're not there any longer. That's why the old days are always better than the present because you're not there. You, you start thinking about reminiscing, and you kind of remix like what was and what wasn't. We see this in real time with Naomi. She's reminiscing, and she's remixing things. Did you hear her language? She said, I left full, but God brought me back empty. Say that with me. I left full, but God brought me back empty. Did she leave full? It was a famine. Her husband was not leading the family well, leading them away from the place that God had ordained and, and promised and purpose was. Did she leave full? But when she reminisces, she was full. And now she's coming back empty. But did you see how her theology got skewed? Did you see it was in the scripture there? When she reminisces, she takes credit for the blessing and gives God credit for the blame. She said, I left full, not God, I left full. But God brought me back. He's afflicted me. Her theology is revealed here. She believes in the sovereignty of God only as it relates to bad things. If it's good, I got it. If it's good, it's my success. It's my work ethic. It's my hard work. It's those who have come before me. It's I just, I'm really good. I'm really this. I'm really that. I left full, but you know who brought me back empty? God. That's her theology. And that's some of us here today. God only comes with the picture in bad times, in sorrow, and generally it's his fault. And there, was, there were a series of, of, of things that happened to lead to these, these results. 
but she doesn't think of that in the moment. But I can empathize with her because I've been there. Where your theology, because of trials and situations, you, you just start blaming God for stuff he's got no business being blamed for. At this point, she needs to remember her God, his provision, and his love, but she's not there just yet. And so I'm going to turn with you now to Ruth chapter 2 so we can see how God is going to lead and guide her during this time of the barley harvest and as he leads and guides them from Moab back now to Bethlehem. And it says this, I'm going to start in verse 2. And it says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Not let's unpack our bags, not let's go to the gym and start meeting some people, not let's, let's go to have some coffee and start figuring out what's going on in Bethlehem. She says this, she goes, Let's, um, let me go to the field and pick the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. Let me give you context. Naomi just gave Ruth authorization to go work hard. She just gave her authorization to go work in a field, do backbreaking work, pretty much farming. And so the context here is key. Leviticus 23, um, there's a law that God institute for the poor. Are you aware that God always cares about the poor? God always cares about those who are disenfranchised, those who are less fortunate. It's always near and dear to his heart, and we know this because he sets it up initially even in the law. And the law is this, is that you cannot harvest all of your field. You can't go back and pick up whether it's fruit or, or other things that are harvest wheat from the field. You have to leave the stuff that falls by the wayside. Even one study shows up to 25% was left for the poor, and it's a dignified work, right? It's not a handout. They've got to work for it. And so they've got to go, and they've got to collect. They've got to collect, and they go back and feed their family. But it's a dangerous proposition because you're not the only person going to that field. And so she's a single woman who's a widow in this Middle Eastern culture that anything and everything can happen. And so she says, hey, I'm going to go work hard. I'm not going to sit here and woe is me. I'm going to go work hard and, and, and provide here. Verse 3 says this. So she went out and entered a field. We're talking about Ruth. And began to glean behind the harvesters. So they're taking the harvest and whatever's falling. She's just collecting it and collecting it and collecting it. As it turned out. Someone say, as it turned out. You know some little provident, providential language here. As it turned out. As it just so happened. She was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who just, by the way, as it turned out, was from the clan of Elimelech. Remember that guy? Naomi's now deceased husband. She's working in the field of Elimelech, who was from the clan, or in, in Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech, and the barley harvest was beginning. Okay. Verse 5. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvest, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she's the Moabite. Remember, the context would come into mind when you hear of a Moabite. What a Jew would think, oh, she's one of those. Oh, she's from there. Oh, I know their religion. Oh, I know how they got started. Lot's daughters. Like, there are a lot of connotations would come. There'd be very much so a scarlet letter on her as she's gathering with other Jews, and she's a what? She's a Gentile. But because she's with Naomi, they're giving her a pass. She's the Moabite who came back with Mo, from Moab with Naomi. Verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth, God just like turns his heart for some reason, and he deals with her so kindly. Watch this. My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean another field and go away from here. Stay here with the woman, with the women who work for me. 
He's just, he's really kind to her, really for no reason. And verse 11 says this, Boaz replied, I've been told all about you and what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you have left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. Boaz is seeing something about her, and apparently he's asked around about her too. And he's seeing to make the transition from the pagan land to the godly land. You've got to accept the culture. You've got to accept the God. You've got to be bought in to live with Naomi and now to be providing for your family, not looking for any man or any situation like, I'm going to trust God that he's going to work this thing out. Verse 17 is this. So Ruth gleaned in the field into evening. Man, she's a hard worker. She starts in the morning early. She gleans to the afternoon, and she has a full day of work. And it says then she threshed the barley. So she didn't just gather it. She threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about ephah. And so they're, they're going to shake the barley out. In this place in the Middle East, the winds are coming up, and so it's shaking everything out. And she's coming home with about, about a week's worth of food, and so it was a really good day for her. Verse 19 her mother-in-law asked her, this is Naomi. She says, hey, great harvest. Where did, where, where did you glean today? Like, this is really good. Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she says. And as Naomi hears this, it's like a fresh drink of water. She said, Who? The Lord blessed him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He is not showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our closest relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. It's, remember, don't forget, it's the barley harvest. Remember, don't forget, they, they've come they've, with loss and trauma. Remember, don't forget, she just picks a random field. Because that day she had to go supply for their needs because nobody else was going to meet their needs. There was no church knocking on the door saying, hey, can we help you? Can we provide for you? There was none of that going on. They go to this random field, it would seem, as it turned out, all providential language, and they happen to be working in the field of Boaz, who is a kin or family of the deceased husband, Elimelech. And so the language we just read here, if we can put that back on the screen, verse 20, this guardian redeemer language this is a kinsman, and, 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 and what that means, I, I need to show you this so you can understand, a lot of stuff is happening all at once here. A close relative or a kinsman or guardian redeemer in Hebrew is a goel. This language is so important, it's found 23 times in the book of Ruth, and this, na this name, this reference to Hebrew goel is the nearest living relative, blood relative, um, and the purpose here is this, that if you find a relative who's interested in you, they can redeem you. you. You can be available for them to come into covenant of a marriage with. So there's a lot of things that Naomi seems to be now forgetting about the hardships and now thinking, what is God doing? What is God aligning? I'm going to take you out of Ruth chapter 3. And Ruth chapter 3 shows us this in verse 1. The place where purpose and providence intersect, oftentimes is faith and action. The place where we talked about last week, where the place where purpose and providence intersect is the place where faith is in action. And so Ruth chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be provided for. Long story short, Ruth is single. 
And Naomi says, we got to get you married. She says, we got to get you in a relationship. She said, we've got to get you moving along here. And she's going to give a single girl some advice. For the single girls and single guys in the room, can I help you for a moment? Stop going to your single friends for relationship advice. Crazy thought, crazy thought, right? Go to some godly men and women who have a successful marriage for relationship advice. And Ruth is getting relationship advice from somebody who knows a thing or two about relationships. Now, Boaz, uh, with whose women you have worked with, he's a relative of ours. Remember, he's a goel. He's a kinsman redeemer. Possibly. possibly. Tonight, he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. In verse 3, just a little more insight to the, to the single men and single women out there. She says this, hey, go shower. I mean, it's just very plain language. Like, no, no, no Hebrew scholarly involved here. I didn't have to work that hard on verse 3. It was, it, as you saw, that's how it came off. Wash put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. She tells the single ladies and single men, hey, wash up, paint the barn. Let's, let's, let's get some things right here and present yourself and where he may take notice. Like, this, this is something you should do. For us, it doesn't land in our culture, right? We, we shower daily for most of our children at least a couple days a week. Um, it's always a struggle with kids, right? I don't know why. But we shower daily, and so... It, it's to say shower because they wouldn't shower regularly. It would be an, not a regular occurrence. And this continued all throughout history. I, was even, I even saw a study, even up until the 1500s, people didn't shower but once a year. Like, like true story, you can look this stuff up. Everybody's all in now. <laughs> true story. And it is so, um, it is so marking in, in the history of humanity that we even have sayings from the lack of hygiene in the culture. Watch this. They took a shower once a year, usually around May, and they would bring in the water to whatever the bath was in the home. You can research this. And the order of people taking a bath looked like this. The men and all the stuff in the men, all the parts, they would shower, they would bathe first in that same water. The next would be the sons or any relatives who are men in the household. The next would be the boys. The next would be the women, the next would be the girls, and the last would be the babies. You see that sneaky expression we have in our culture, don't throw the baby out with what? Because you couldn't see them. Oh, the... That's gross. I'm never using that expression again. And that's maintained in our culture. I saw another study from the same time frame where, you know, we have flowers and bouquets and weddings. Well, weddings were typically in the summer months. That was because people generally had not bathed in May, and so things were not maybe smelling great on that special day. And so they had bouquets of flowers. And to this day, what are we doing weddings? Bouquets of flowers. And so just a little context, a little cultural context here. I don't know if that does anything for anybody, but at least you'll have some great icebreakers at work tomorrow. Um, so a woman who has been married, a woman who understands a godly marriage, gives advice to a single person looking for a godly marriage or a godly relationship, which is really profound. And I say profound because when I talk to single people and they tell me about the struggles of being single and the hardships, my next question, I'm just at this place in my life, I ask, well, where are you looking? And you'd be surprised. 
of how many people out here, they're looking in bars, like bar hopping. Well, I just can't find anybody in the bars. Oh, really? I just, at this one club, I, I couldn't find. Oh, really? At this music festival, oh, that is a tough space to, to maybe find the right one. And what you're going to see here is that she's getting godly advice and godly counsel. So my biggest advice to you who are single in the room, uh, find some godly people. Be accountable to people who have a history of doing it godly and doing it well. Because that's what she's getting right now. Goes on to say this after she says, hey, perfume, get dressed, wash up. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know that you are there until after he has finished eating and drinking. Once again, if you're going to approach a man, Wait till he finishes eating and drinking, right? This is common things, right? Like, we're always better men on a full stomach than an empty stomach. Like, that, that just, Naomi knows her stuff here. I love it. I mean, that's, that's just, that's logical. Verse 4, when he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And that's different for us, right? She's going to go find where he's laying. She's going to go creep in, and she's going to go uncover his feet. Um, why is that? Well, if you want to just jot a note down, Leviticus 25, 25, you'll see here that Ruth's actions amount to what's going to be a marriage proposal, which was a well-known provision in the Hebrew law when it came to a kinsman redeemer or a go-well. This, this uncovering the feet was a sign of submission, was a sign of, I'm interested, are you interested? But what you'll see has no sexual connotation. Verse 5, I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. That's so beautiful. Let me tell you why. She didn't know how to godly date. She came from a pagan culture. They were sacrificing babies to their culture. She didn't know anything about how to do this the God way, the right way. So she finds a godly mentor, a godly woman and says, I'll do whatever you say. I saw your life. I saw how you live. I saw how you, you had your marriage and how you loved your sons. Like, I want that. There's something about someone who lives for God that other people want to follow is amazing. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Verse 7. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, as all men are after eating, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. So he's invested in his fields, right? He's sleeping by the grain pile in the field. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and laid down. Verse 8. In the middle of the night, Something startled the man. I'd say so. He had a woman staring at him and laying at his feet. Two things here. The feet are uncovered because your feet would get cold and you'd wake up eventually. And the second thing is if you have kids, you know what I mean. When somebody's staring at you in the middle of the night in your bed, that startles you. When you have a child looking over you, you need to go to the bathroom, wanting to drink a water, saying they're sick, that is a startling moment, right? You're not sure what's going on. You might cry for help. Might, like me, you might cry for Courtney to handle the situation. You, it will startle you. And he's startled. His feet are uncovered, feet are cold, and there's a woman. He doesn't know if it's a dream or reality. He said, who are you? What's going on? And what's, what's happening here is, is something is unpacking once again, embedded within Hebrew scriptural um, uh, uh, a precedent for widows, uh, the, the, the principle or the law of leveret marriage, where she's hoping that he wants to continue his family line's name through coming into this marriage. That's what she's hoping. She is being the one to say, hey, I, I recognize you're a man of God, and I want to let you know that I'm interested, okay? Naomi is of noble character here and doesn't worry about any of the 
um, secular ways that she knew about in the past. Remember, she had to talk to uh, Naomi. Ruth has to have a conversation. So whatever you say, I'll do. I don't know how to date. I don't know how to pursue things. God, you have to show me how to do that. And Ruth lets her know it's not just about the outward appearance, but it's about the character. It's about following God's ways. And so singles, this would amount to dating and living for God the way the Bible says. The uncovering, the feet, the submissive kind of thing here. This is what God says, and so she's following that out. And apparently what we see here from Boaz is that character attracts character. Because he sees her uncover his feet, and I want to read this to you. Uh, Let's go to chapter 3 and verse 9. Boaz says this, who are you, he asked. Remember, it's dark. He's sleeping. He's, he's, he's full. He's, 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 he's in a good place. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are, here's a language, Goel, a guardian redeemer of our family. She's asking, will you take me under your covering? W- would you marry me? Would you, would you want to build a life with me? It's kind of like a Sadie Hawkins dance kind of thing, right? She's inviting him to the dance. She is an independent woman, and she knows who she is, and she knows what God's word now says because she's got a good mentor. Verse 10, this is his response. He could be creeped out. He could be like, this is weird. This is strange. Because remember, if she's serving God and he's serving God, he should understand what's going on. If you're serving God and want to build a relationship with somebody else and they're serving God, they should know what's going on when you talk about living for God, right? So let's see if he's serving God. Verse 10, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. The kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town that you, would you ask? And all the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely associated. So we got a couple of wrinkles here. The first thing is this. Character attracts character. Godliness attracts godliness. Obedience to God's word attracts other people who are being obedient to God's word. Amen? But also, easy attracts easy. Right? Compromise attracts compromise. Ungodliness attracts ungodliness. So please, 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 don't say you can only find ungodly men and women. Depends the pond you're fishing in. Depends the scent you're giving off. Right? Because when she comes to him in a godly way, remember, you can read through the story, nothing sexual at all uncovers his feet and goes about it the godly way. He's attracted to the godliness, like she's attracted to his godliness. There's something happening here that God is telling us in relationships that this is the way to go about it. It's pretty profound. But once again, he's going by the rules. He says, I'm not your closest of kin. I'm not your closest. Of kin. So now his response to her makes her heart sink. Oh, my gosh. I have my heart set on this, and this might not be God's purpose. This might not be God's will. And so I got to flip your chapter one more to the last chapter of Ruth, and here's how we'll close out today. Ruth chapter 4 and verse 1. It says this, Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate, and the town gate's important. You see, when they want to do business, they go to the town gate. It's a forum. Abraham goes there. Absalom goes there. Whenever somebody wants to be influential or have meetings or meet people, they go to the town gate and sat down there. And, and, and just so happens, guess who passes by? The guardian redeemer, somebody in the family who was closer of kin than he was and he, that he mentioned came along. Verse 2, Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town, then 
In verse 3, he said to the garden redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. That's funny. He says her land's for sale, but doesn't mention her just yet. He's got something in mind. He said, yeah, this piece of land's for sale, man. It's a great land. You'd love it. Um, verse 4, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention, suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, someone say redeem. From here on out, this is the word that's got to be seared in your mind. Redeem, redeem, redeem. If you redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me. So I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, because I'm next in line. And the response is, I will do it. Come on, redeem the land, increase my, my profits, my, my bottom line, my income. Why not? Let's do this. Then Boaz said, oh, by the way, oh, by the way. You see, you see how he's doing this? Oh, by the way. On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the who? There's the zinger. A Moabite. You've got to enter to covenant with not just the land, but the woman and the Moabite. The man's dead widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. He says, do you want to be a go well? And at this, the guardian redeemer said, yeah, that I cannot redeem. He was all in with the land right? He was all in with, with, with the cheap stuff, with, with, with the thing, no commitment, but for the relationship, he wasn't in. Can I get some singles to say amen? Watch the people that just want, want the land, but not the commitment, okay? He wanted the land, didn't want the commitment. He said, nah, I, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You can redeem it yourself. I can't do it. Scholarly studies would say that maybe he had adult children. It could intersect with the estate. There was things that would, would, would affect it, but the zinger was for sure she was a Moabite. Verse 8, so the garden redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witness. I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. Also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead. This is what the Goel right, the, the law of leveret, uh, marriage, with his property so that his name will not disappear from among our family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. How about that? Like, remember where we started in Moab? Dead husband, dead sons, hungry, now, now coming back to, to Bethlehem. And now, verse 13 says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. How beautiful. She waited on God. He waited on God. And God always comes through. Always comes through. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said, not to Ruth, but who? The one who lost her children, who lost her husband, the one who was the matriarch of the family, who brought them back to the place of obedience, Bethlehem. They said to Naomi, praise be the Lord this day, who has not left you without a guardian redeemer. In verse 16, I can't imagine what it is to lose your son or to lose someone you love and you hold someone who looks like them. I can't imagine what she feels in verse 16. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. I don't know if he looked like her husband or her son. I don't know who he looked like, what generational DNA passed through there, but there had to be something in the family line. And it says the women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. God takes bitter stories and makes them sweet, doesn't he? God takes bitter stories and makes them sweet. And it's so beautiful. It is so beautiful. But here's where we're going to do a little bit of tying the bow here. 
Do you remember last week, Rahab, and how she comes to the family line? Do you remember who she marries? She marries a guy named Salmon, right? She marries a guy named Salmon, and I need to show you something here. If you have your Bible, it's going to be really easy to find. Turn to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5. I'm going to walk you through something. Salmon marries Rahab. What was Rahab? A Gentile, a prostitute, came from pagan culture, pagan country, but God gives Salmon a heart for her to bring her to the family line, redeems her in a certain way, and now we have what? We have Ruth, who's been redeemed by who? Boaz, into the family line. Now I want to read you something. Matthew chapter 5, or chapter 1, verse 5. Salmon, the father of who? Whose mother was who? So Boaz's mother was who? The prostitute who got saved in Jericho, the court on the, the window, saved her whole family, was put into Israel's family line. They have a son, Obed. He watches a woman from the same type of pagan nation, a woman who's a Gentile, not a Jew. He has a heart for her. What does he see? He sees his mom in her. He sees the struggle in her. He says, I recognize that struggle. I recognize that counting the cost, leaving the old, and coming to God. And so when others look down on Ruth, Boaz says, I remember that in my mom. I remember that she told me the stories of how God saved her. I remember what that loss felt like for her. And we are told that Boaz, the son of Rahab, marries Ruth. And it gets so much better. Watch this. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of who? Aren't you so proud of Rahab and Ruth? Aren't you so happy? They came broken. They came hurting. And God says, that's just what I need in my family tree to produce King David, the predecessor, the one who had to come before Messiah. And oh, by the way, verse 16, father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who's called who? So who's in the Messiah's family line? And then who? And then 27 generations after Ruth, Jesus comes. The Moabite gleaning in the field of a random field during the barley harvest. Oh, you've got to be able to see your life in here. You've got to be able to see God's providence in his hand. You've got to be able to start trusting God more than you've ever trusted him before because he's at work in your life. And so now, now we get to put together our family tree. We started with God. We went with Adam and Eve, the Noah and Abraham and Sarah, Salmon and Rahab, Boaz and Ruth, King David, Joseph, and the Messiah. From a prostitute, from a pagan nation, from a now widow from a pagan nation in Moab, a cursed place. Here's what I want to leave you with. Boaz is willing to buy the field. But does he want the field? What does he want? He wants the bride, doesn't he? Boaz buys the field to get the bride. Matthew 13, 44 says, Heaven, the kingdom of heaven, is like a treasure hidden. And a man sells everything he has to buy the field to get to the treasure. Do you know what Jesus just showed us there? You know what the Bible just showed us there? 
we are the hidden treasure. We are the one being redeemed. How does he purchase humanity? With his death on the cross. He doesn't want this world. He wants you and me. And the price was his death and his blood. Boaz pays the price to get the bride. Jesus paid the price to get the bride, the church. And everything in the Bible you read, it's all about getting to Jesus and all about him redeeming his people. And I I know we went a little bit longer today, but you have to see this. You have to see that you and I, we, we are Ruth. We are Rahab. We've been purchased with a price. She had nothing to offer Boaz. I have nothing fitting for a king. I have nothing to offer him. But he would redeem me. He would buy me back from sin. Rahab has nothing to offer. But she's redeemed. and She's part of the family line. Can you see the providence? Can you see the purpose of God? in your life in the way that Rahab in the way that Ruth could see it. God, thank you for the amazing impact of your word. Thank you that we can see your hand at work in Rahab and and in Ruth and in this family tree and we also will see your hand at work in our line, in our families and in all the messiness, Father, that you have a plan it's going to be real generations down the line. So God, encourage us in this moment. Help us to, to grab faith in this incredible story, I pray. And lastly, if you're in the building with your heads bowed, if you are far from Jesus, I would love to offer you the opportunity to pray with our church family and to welcome him into your life. For some of you, you knew him, but you've walked away, so you'll need to rededicate in your prayer. You'll, you'll use that language, Lord, I come back to you. I surrender anew. And if for some of you, you've never prayed the prayer, we want to offer you the opportunity today to pray that prayer to receive Jesus into your life. And so church, we pray with those who are going to pray this prayer. Lord God, we believe in you. We repent of our sins and welcome Jesus into our lives. Holy Spirit, give us a hunger for your word and for discipleship and accountability. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Put your hands together for all those who prayed that prayer today. Thank you for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, please check out our website at LegacyChurchAI.org or follow us on social media at LegacyChurchAI. We'll see you next time.